Good morning. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, help us as we read these scriptures together. Grant us understanding and reveal your truth to us. Open our minds, hearts, and souls to all that these words of promise and life offer us. We long to be renewed by your word. And all of God's people said, This morning's scripture is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 51, verses 1 through 3, found on page 777 of your pew Bible. Again, Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 3, page 777 in the pew Bible. Last Sunday, we heard Isaiah in chapter 53 prophesy the coming of Jesus. Now, in chapter 51, he offers the comfort of Zion. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father. And to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving. And the voice of song. What will heaven be like? Raise your hand if you've lost a loved one. (laughs) Then we all want to know. What is it like for them today? What will heaven be like for us when we die? What is it heaven like for them today? You know, if you read the scriptures, specifically if you read Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, you'll see some wonderful testimonies about the final battle between good and evil, the final judgment that comes, and the final redemption and glorification of God and the redemption of His creation. But if you, beginning with Revelation chapter 4, it talks about the things that must happen or the things that are to come. But what about the moment when we die? What happens in that moment? Before Christ returns, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus talks about when he, when he returns, Matthew 24. When he returns, there'll, there'll be those who are, who are working, and some will be taken up and some will be left behind, and there will be a judgment. We read about that in Matthew 25 of all of creation. But, but that's going to happen when Christ returns. What happens to us bef- if when we die before Christ returns? Several months ago, I was uh, preparing a funeral for a, a longtime member of our church, and this uh, member had a, an adult child who no longer lives uh, here in Amarillo, but she was asking me, she said, you know, as I read the Bible, I can see quite clearly there's going to be a final judgment day on the, the last day of Christ. When Christ returns, there'll be this final judgment, and, and I understand that, but, but what happens the moment after you die? Where is my father today? That's a great question to answer that question, to see what the Scriptures say, to see specifically what Jesus has to say, when it, what happens to us when we die, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, 
chapter 23, beginning with verse 32. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 32. Listen to the word of the Lord. Two others were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Luke to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today, an orderly, faithful account of the life and the teachings and the sayings of Jesus. Now, oh God, as we look back at this word, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes and open our hearts, that we might be transformed in the reading and the preaching and the reflection of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the Greek word for paradise there is actually an old Persian word that was used to describe a walled park or garden. In Greek, it, used, it, it was used uh, to describe the parks or the gardens of the Persian king. They adopted this Persian word and, and brought it into their own Greek language. Here's a picture of an old Persian paradise garden that's in Iran today. It's very similar to what they would have had centuries ago. When the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, Then Alexander the Great conquered much of the Mediterranean world, and Greek became the language of trade, and so they translated the Hebrew into Greek. As they were doing so, uh, they decided to take the Hebrew word for garden, and they decided to use the Greek word for paradise, paradeson, this old Persian word for wall or garden. And so the Hebrew word for gone was translated uh, using the Greek word paradeson. And so in Genesis chapter 2, when we read about the Garden of Eden and God's earliest creation, he says, and the Lord God planted a garden, they use the word paradeson, in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground of the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the paradeson, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As we all know from the story of of Genesis chapter 3, the very next chapter, Adam and Eve commit the original sin of 
of eating from the forbidden fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they do, when they bring sin into that garden, into that paradise, they eventually, as a part of the consequence of their sin, is they are cast out of the, of the garden, of the paradise garden of God. And ever since they were cast out, the people of God have wanted to return to that garden, to that paradise. In fact, the passage that Russell read just a moment ago from Isaiah 51 is a word of comfort to the people of Israel while they're living in exile. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him and that I might bless him and multiply him. Father Abraham, remember him and how I made a great nation out of that one man. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. The Greek word there is paradison, like the paradise of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Again, the Greek word for garden that the Septuagint uses is paradison. There'll be joy, gladness, thanksgiving, and voice of song in the paradison, in the garden of the Lord. And paradison is the very same word that Luke uses when retelling the story of Jesus on the cross, when he turns to that criminal and tells him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, I say to you. In the Gospel of Luke, this is the sixth time Jesus has said the word truly. Truly in the Greek is actually amen. So amen, anytime we say amen, it means truly, like absolutely, that's the truth. And every time Jesus says that in the Gospel of Luke, basically Jesus is saying, pay attention. I'm not lying to you. This isn't a parable. Don't be confused. Truly I say to you, this is the way it will be. In fact, the most recent time that Jesus had used truly was in Luke 18. In Luke 18, uh, People try to bring children and infants to Jesus, and his disciples try to ward them off, thinking there'll be a disruption to Jesus. But Jesus says, no, no, Luke 8, 16. But Jesus said to the, called to them, saying, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's one of the reasons we as Presbyterians baptize children. We're about to do one here in a moment. We baptize children thanking God for for their presence among us. Uh, Just as circumcision was a sign of God's covenant in the old covenant of grace, uh, old covenant of the law where a baby would be circumcised at eight days old and no, no boy volunteered for that. Okay, that was chosen on them. That was done for them. It highlights the provenient grace of God, that God loves us before we ever love them. And so we welcome children into our fellowship, and we welcome them into our worship, and we, and we baptize them like we're about to do today. It's excited to celebrate so that one day this child with his own lips will confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, and so be saved as we read from the scriptures. Yet Jesus says, truly I say to you, you must come to, to God like a child. Notice that in our text in Luke 23, the confessing criminal on the cross comes to Jesus humbly, like a child. He confesses his sin. He recognizes that what he's done is wrong. He, he is deserving of the punishment that he's receiving. And then in all humility, he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And of course, Jesus responds with a word of acceptance and comfort and tells them, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice that Jesus says today. He doesn't say at the final resurrection, when I return, then you'll be with me in paradise. No, he says today you will be with me in paradise. John Calvin, the father of the Presbyterian church, says in his commentary on this specific verse, Luke 23, verse 43, he says, 
We, not, we ought not to enter into the curious and subtle arguments about the place of paradise. Let us rest satisfied with knowing that those who are engrafted by faith into the body of Christ are partakers of that life and thus enjoy after death a blessed and joyful rest until the perfect glory of heavenly life is fully manifested by the coming of Christ. For those of us who who believe in Christ, we know that the moment that we die, we are going to move into joyful rest in paradise with Jesus. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out that for the first century Jew, paradise in Jewish thought wasn't necessarily the final resting place because as you read Revelation, you'll see that at the very end of time, there's going to be a new heaven, new earth, and earth is, earth is going to be redeemed and restored. And I'll preach about that on Mother's Day, but there's going to be a new heaven, new earth when, when God comes down and Christ comes down and makes all things new. But until that day, we'll go to paradise. Yes, paradise in Jewish thought wasn't necessarily the final resting place, but the place of rest and refreshment before the gift of new life and the resurrection. When that adult child asked me with all humility, I know that when Christ returns, you know, he's going to make all things new and, and there'll be this final judgment day and earth's going to be redeemed, but, but where is my father today? I reminded her of the words of Jesus on the cross that we find in Luke 23. I reminded her that Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I told her, today your father is with Jesus in paradise. For we know from Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul tells us that, for I am neither sure that, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not even death itself. Yes, the scriptures are very clear that for those of us who profess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We will be with Jesus in paradise the moment we die. We see this in the writings of the Apostle Paul who writes from a prison cell in Philippi, or, or to the church in Philippi. He's actually in a Roman prison cell, writing to the church in Philippi. And he tells them that he's wrestling. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How could dying be gain? Keep reading. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Paul knows that the moment that he dies, he will be with Christ. He desires that greatly. But he also knows that while he's here on this earth, God is using him, even in a prison cell, to make disciples of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel of God's amazing love. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul knows that when he dies, he'll depart to be with Jesus, but he needs to remain for a while to continue to do the work of God's kingdom, the work that God has called him to. Yes, if you're not dead, then God's not done with us yet. He still wants to use us to do the work of his kingdom, to point others to Christ. So what will paradise look like? Does it look like this? Wish I had brought a magazine. <laughs> Here's a man uh, turned into an angel sitting on a cloud, bored out of his mind, saying, man, I just wish I had brought a magazine. There's just not much to do in heaven. 
That's not at all what the heaven's going to be like. That's not at all what paradise is according to the scriptures. No, we won't be angels. Angels are angelic. They're uh, heavenly beings who are messengers of God. They were created to be angels, but we were created as human beings. In fact, we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God created each one of us in his image. Both male and female were created in the very image of God. And so when, when we die, we'll be given bodies, uh, spiritual bodies. Uh, we will, as Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians, to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53, he says, for this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on mortal immortality. In paradise, we are given new bodies. My chronic back pain that has bothered me since high school will be gone. I won't have to worry about whether or not I sat too long, like I drove back from four hours and my back has been tight this morning. I won't have to deal with that. My wife's vision will be perfect. It'll be completely restored. She won't need glasses or contacts. My father's health, which uh, if you could be praying for him, he, he had uh, cancer two years ago, uh, prostate cancer, and they did radiation therapy. He was able to overcome that, but unfortunately his PSA count has gone back up. They're going to have to do a bone scan for him, and uh, he's having some heart arrhythmia issues too, so he's going to have an EKG. There's a lot going on with his body right now. and needs a lot of prayer, but, but that won't be an issue. He won't have back pains. He won't have knee pains. He won't have cancer because there's no cancer in heaven. There's no disease. There's no brokenness. It's like it was at the very beginning when we walked with God in perfect communion with God where there was no sin, no brokenness, no pain, no struggle, only praise. It's just as Jesus had a resurrected body that you could touch and you could feel. We will have new imperishable bodies that will feast with Jesus. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if you want to know more about that, go to Matthew 8 and read the words of Jesus in Matthew 8. We will be with Jesus in our heavenly Father's house where there are many rooms. If you want to know more about that, go to John 14 where Jesus talks about how he's going to prepare a place for each one of us. And we will have roles and responsibilities. We won't be just sitting around doing nothing. No, according to the parable of the talents that we find in Matthew 25, based on how faithful we were here, God is going to put us in charge of other things to do to, to help glorify him, to, to help do the work of God's kingdom. If you want to know more about that, go to Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. We won't be just sitting on a cloud, bored out of our mind, wishing we had brought a magazine. No, according to Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 3, we'll, we'll be praising God, rejoicing in God's presence Revelation 19 gives a beautiful picture of this. Yes, we will be with all of our loved ones who have gone ahead of us in glory. I'll be with my grandmother, my mom's mom, who lived with us from when she was 90 until she was 98. I'll get to see her again. I'll get to see her husband, my grandfather, that I barely knew because he died when I was four years old. I'll finally get to meet my dad's dad, who died when he was only six years old, so I never knew him. But I'll get to see him, and I'll get to see his wife, my grandmother. I'll get to see John Calvin and Martin Luther, the fathers of the Reformation. Can you imagine a Bible study with John Calvin? That would be awesome. I'm finally going to get to see my hero, uh, one of my heroes in the faith, Eric Little. You remember that guy, the Scottish missionary runner who won the gold medal in the 1924 Olympics, inspired my favorite movie, Chariots of Fire? Maybe I'll go on a jog with Eric Little. It'll be awesome. I'm going to get to see one of my heroes in basketball, Pistol Pete Maravich, who came to Christ later in his basketball career and wrote a book called Air to Dream that I read in high school and realized that, you know, success on the basketball court is empty unless you've got Christ in your life. Maybe I'll play some pickup basketball with Pistol Pete Maravich. He'll probably win, but it'll be great to hang with him. <laughs> who do you look forward to seeing? It's going to be great. All of our loved ones, you raised our hand just a moment ago, and there was a name that came to your mind, there was a face that came to your mind, you'll get to see them again. It'll be awesome. Reminds me of the story of this 
85-year-old couple who had worked really hard to eat healthy the last 20 years of their life. And, and unfortunately, they were in a car accident, and so they, they crashed and died. But they had had such good health those last 20 years because they were so committed to eating raw, organic vegetables and bran muffins. When they reached the pearly gates of St. Peter, took them to their mansion that they had inherited and said, look at this beautiful mansion. It had the huge kitchen that the wife loved and it had a great view of a golf course that came up to their backyard. There was a bath, a huge bathroom with master suite and, and a, a jacuzzi. And as they oohed and aah, the husband kind of turned to St. Peter and says, hey, what's this going to cost? And St. Peter says, you don't get it. It's heaven. It's all free. This is grace. This is given to you. And then he took them to the backyard where they could see that they were, well, their, their backyard uh, measured up against a golf course. And, and that week it looked a lot like Pebble Beach. And he goes, yeah, it's great up here in heaven. We've got this golf course. And every week we rotate it and we make one of the great courses up here. And this week it's Pebble Beach. And you can get a tea time anytime. There's no wait. It's amazing. And, and the, again, the husband said, well, what's that going to cost? He says, you don't get it. This is heaven. It's all free. Let me take you to the clubhouse. And so he took him to the clubhouse, and they showed him this amazing buffet with cuisines from all over the world, all the food you could possibly eat. I mean, all the great, uh, fine cuisines. And, and again, the, the husband said, well, what does this cost? He goes, no, no, it's, it's all free. Don't you get this? And, and then he asked a question, kind of scared. He said, well, where's the low-fat and low-cholesterol table? Peter's like, we don't even have that here. We don't need that. I mean, you can eat whatever you want. You've got this heavenly body. You can't get sick. You can't gain weight. It's amazing. And at this... The husband took his hat off, threw it on the ground, and began to stamp on it, getting angry. And Peter was like, what's wrong? And the wife said, what's wrong? And he says, this is all your fault, pointing to his wife. And he said, if you hadn't made me eat all those raw uh, organic vegetables and all those bran muffins, I would have been here 20 years ago. <laughs> Heaven's going to be great. Can't wait to get there. But the fact is that if we're not dead, God's not done with us yet. He still wants to use us to do the work of his kingdom. He still wants to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. He wants to help use us to point others to the unconditional sacrificial love that we find in Jesus. Unfortunately, the one bad news I have about heaven, as you read the scriptures, specifically the teachings of Jesus, is that not everybody's going to be there. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16, Verse 19 to 31, he tells this parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In this parable, Jesus makes it real clear that when we die, there's only one of two places we go. We go to heaven 
to be in paradise with Jesus. Or if we've rejected Jesus and his ways, we go to hell. I want to point out something real quickly here. Just because the man's rich, that's not why he goes to hell. There are a lot of wealthy people in in, in heaven. Abraham is in heaven. He was a very wealthy man. The reason this wealthy man is in hell is because while he was here on this earth, he cared nothing for other men. He, He didn't fear God or want to obey God's word. Because God's very clear to us, the second most important commandment is to love your neighbors yourself. And yet this rich man, in all his affluence, cared nothing for those around him. This man, Lazarus, this poor man, was at his gate. He saw him every day, and yet he ignored him. He did nothing for him. This is, we can see from this parable, and the parable of the talents that we find in Matthew 25, what ultimately determines one's final destination is whether or not we were faithful. Were we faithful? Were we faithful with what God had given to us? We faithful with all that we knew. As the Epistle of James states, faith without deeds is, is dead. True faith, saving faith, leads to action. It leads us to bear fruits of the Spirit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we respond to the great love of Jesus, we can't help but be a conduit of God's love and, and fulfill the, the second most important commandment, which is to love our neighbors ourselves, to, to treat others the way we'd want to be treated. Those are the teachings of Jesus. And if we ignore the teachings of Jesus, if we ignore his teachings, then we ultimately deny Jesus. We deny the lordship of Christ in our lives. Yes, if we believe in Jesus, then we will love our neighbor. We will do all that we can to help point them to the love of Christ. Notice that in our original passage in Luke 23, that there were two criminals hanging next to Jesus on the cross. One criminal mocks Jesus, The other criminal honors Jesus. Jesus only offers paradise to the criminal who honors him. I wish I could tell you that everybody's going to be in heaven, but I I just can't. That's not what the Bible says. In the parable that I I just read from Luke 16, the rich man is selfish and self-centered. He doesn't obey God. He cares nothing for his fellow man. He consumes lavish food and ignores the needs of Lazarus lying at his gate, who would have loved just to eat the crumbs from his table. To ignore our neighbor in need is to ultimately deny the teachings of Jesus. As we look at Luke 10, we can see that Jesus honors the Samaritan of all people, kind of the half-breed, half-Jew, half-Pharisee, or uh, half-Gentile, honors the, the Samaritan of all people because he loved the man who'd been robbed and beaten and left for dead. Who is God calling us to reach out to with the love of Christ? Who is God telling us that we need to love and treat as we would want to be treated if we were them? Are we doing all that we can to help point others to Jesus? Because in the book of Acts, the book that Luke wrote, the final words that Luke writes for Jesus' words to his disciples is in, Luke, is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends to heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Through a great deal of prayer and guided by the Holy Spirit, may God use us to be a witness of his unconditional, sacrificial love as we seek to treat others the way we want to be treated. And as they see that and experience that love through us, they'll want to know why, and we can tell them about God's love that we find in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that others may see your good deeds and give praises to your Father who's in heaven. 
I pray that each one of us will do all that we can to point others to Jesus. So that when we get to paradise, every family member, every coworker, every neighbor, every friend that we have will be there with us because they know Jesus. They've committed their life to Christ as the criminal did in the 11th hour. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He humbled himself and, and came to Christ. May we be used as an instrument of God's grace to point others to Jesus. Yes, heaven is a great place. But according to Jesus, the only way to get there is through him. May we do that all that we can to point others to Jesus so they too might believe and believing have a new life, have eternal life in his name. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much for the way that Jesus has made a, a path for us to, to get to heaven. Lord, through his sacrifice and through his resurrection, we know that because he lives, we too shall live. As he says, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. God, we thank you for the eternal life and the new life that we have in Christ. We pray that by your spirit, you would use us to minister to those who are far from you. You might help us to love our neighbors ourselves, to treat them the way we'd want to be treated if we were them, so they might come to know the unconditional, sacrificial love of Christ. They might come to know Jesus, and in knowing Jesus, be saved. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Well, as Howard said, we have the joy of being a baptism today.